Galatians 3, 15 to 29. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. If is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So today is Reformation Sunday. This is always the Sunday closest to October 31, which apart from being Halloween, is also Reformation Day. Not because the reformers were vehemently opposed or for uh, celebrating Halloween, but because on October 31, 1517, Martin Luther published his 95 Theses, which is the event that most scholars say kicked off the Protestant Reformation. And his 95 theses, otherwise titled The Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences, list in detail Luther's opposition to the Roman Catholic Church's practice of selling indulgences, certificates that were believed to reduce a person's time in purgatory. The Catholic Church taught that a person's soul after you died went to purgatory for a final purification before entering heaven. And if you bought indulgences on behalf of that person, you could speed up that purification process. <clears throat> While Luther's theses argue that it is inner repentance alone and the belief that forgiveness is available to all who believe in Jesus Christ that leads a person to salvation. 
You don't need the sacrament of confession, nor do you need to buy indulgences in order to be saved or to speed up the process. Only believe in Jesus Christ. Anything else was something that the church was adding into the mix. So as the Reformation progressed, one of the clear beliefs that was being articulated by various reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Philip Melanchthon, Aldrich Swingley, was that the authority for what we believe comes from scripture and scripture alone. Authority does not rest in the Pope or in the church or in the creeds, or in the confessions, or in one's own special revelation, but in what God has revealed in his word. Other traditions or teachings or institutions are important, and they are meaningful, and they can help us understand scripture, but they don't carry the same weight as scripture. And this was wrapped up in very simply in the doctrine of sola scriptura scripture alone. And it's really this doctrine that's at the heart of the conundrum Paul is addressing in this bit of Galatians we're talking about today. Because Paul's opponents are saying that they actually do have a pretty good idea of what scripture says, that they are in fact resting on the authority of scripture. The people that have come to Galatia, come to this people, and have begun to preach to them the Jesus plus circumcision gospel are doing so because they know scripture. They know what God has revealed in his word. They have studied scripture cover to cover. They've memorized it. They have gone to school to learn what it says. So they know what's written in Leviticus chapter 12, that when a baby boy is born on the eighth day, he is to be circumcised. And they know what's written in Deuteronomy or in Exodus 12, that only circumcised males are allowed to eat the Passover meal. And they know what's written in Deuteronomy 7 and Nehemiah 13 and Exodus 34, that God's people were not to intermarry with foreigners, with people who had not been circumcised. They know all of the scripture that says that the sign of the covenant that God made with his people is circumcision. This is what sets God's people apart. So if someone wants to follow God, if someone wants to be part of the people of God, it logically follows. It says right here in scripture, Paul, that they too must be circumcised. So what, Paul, are you saying then that we're just supposed to throw out this whole part of scripture? Are we just supposed to ignore God's law that he gave us? And I think it's important that we take a minute to appreciate this. Because Paul does not hold back his feelings in the book of Galatians about both the Galatians and the circumcision group. He refers to the Galatians as you foolish people. And the circumcisers, he says, he wishes would go all the way and emasculate themselves. Paul does not hold back his feelings in this letter. And so when we read that, when we read Paul's tone in this letter, I think it's easy for us to just think of the circumcision group as being bad people. 
with sneaky motives and scheming plots. And may maybe that's the case. We don't really know. But it is also possible that this group of preachers who have come into Galatia and preached a message of Jesus and circumcision are doing so because they really love scripture. And they're pretty sure they know what scripture says and thus what God has called them into. They just want to follow God's will for their lives. So for Paul, this isn't a question of the authority of scripture versus something else. This is a question of what the authority of scripture says. This is a question of interpreting scripture. So here in chapter three, he does a bit of interpretation, showing that scripture is consistent and showing ultimately that all of scripture points to the fulfillment of the covenant in Christ Jesus. The covenant Paul is referring to is the covenant God made with Abraham back in Genesis 12. God called Abraham to leave his family and his homeland, for God would make a great nation out of him. I will bless those who bless you, says God, and those who curse you, I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. This, says Paul in the first half of chapter three, this shows that scripture foretold that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. That by a descendant of Abraham from his seed would come a blessing that would be for the whole world. Inclusion of the Gentiles into the family of God has always been God's intent. The promise isn't just for the Jews, but for all the families of the earth. God redeemed us, Paul writes in verse 14, in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. That's the original promise. That's the covenant. And you can't renegotiate terms of a covenant. You can't add terms to a covenant after everyone has already signed off on it. Let's say that I promise Rachel that I'm going to bring her ice cream at work every Wednesday for as long as we work together. I know that her favorite kind of ice cream is moose tracks, so I will have this available every, that's true by the way, in case you're wondering. Uh, so I will have moose tracks available for her along with other varieties and different kinds of toppings and waffle cones will have the works. I make her this promise on a Thursday and I say, we'll kick things off next week Wednesday. And when she asks me why I want to do this, I say, well, we're friends. I just wanna do this nice thing for you. Now she's going to spend the whole week feeling pretty excited about ice cream, right? But then imagine that on the following Tuesday, I say, oh, by the way, in order to get the ice cream tomorrow, you have to alphabetize all of the books on my bookshelves. Next Wednesday, to get the ice cream, you will have to finish the worship series PowerPoints for the rest of the year. 
And the Wednesday after that, you have to go through the hymnal and photocopy every hymn that has the word grace in it. That would rather sour the ice cream experience, wouldn't it? And it would change the understanding of what the promise of ice cream was. It would add terms after the fact, thus negating the freely given gift that the ice cream originally was. We would not stand for such a thing, would we? <laughs> well, if we wouldn't stand for such a thing, how much more would God not stand for such a thing? The promise God made to Abraham that the peoples of the world would be blessed through Abraham and his seed, through Jesus. That is the covenant. That is the promise. And God makes that promise freely. Only 430 years later did the law come into the picture. Only centuries later did God give the people any instructions for what it meant to be the people he had called into his covenant family. So if the inheritance of this blessing, if this welcome into the family of God depends on keeping the law, then the original promise means nothing. Then the terms of the covenant were deceptive. And God is not deceptive. Well, Paul can already hear the clamoring from his opponents. Why did God give us the law then? Why did God give us all of these rules and commandments and tell us that we had better keep them or else? Doesn't the law contradict the promise? Paul's ready. The law doesn't contradict the promise. The law makes us realize how good the promise is. The law makes us realize how much we need the promise. In his catechism, Martin Luther says that there are three uses of the law, and we, the law is just all the commandments God gave his people. Three uses of the law. First is the civil use. The law restrains sin and keeps order in the world. Second is the pedagogical use. The law shows us our sin and points us to our need for mercy and grace that comes outside of ourselves. And third is the normative use. The law teaches us how we ought to live a God-pleasing life in gratefulness. Now the Heidelberg Catechism points to the third use of the law. The Ten Commandments come at the end of the catechism in the gratitude section. Having received God's mercy, how now are we to live? And we're going to look at that particular use of the law in a couple weeks when we'll talk about living life by the Spirit. But in this particular passage, Paul is interested in how the law contributes to salvation. And the only way it relates, he says, is by making us aware of our sin and thus our need for a savior. And the law does this in two ways. First, it holds up a mirror and makes us aware of our sin. 
by laying out all the commandments and rules that God calls us to follow, all of the guidelines he gives us for what a good life looks like. The law means we can't let ourselves off the hook when we go astray. And second, the law makes us all too aware that the law itself cannot make us right with God. Paul says that before Christ came, we were held in custody under the law, that the law was our guardian. And the Dutch theologian Herman Ritterboss says that this word guardian, it refers to a governor for young boys. So imagine a Victorian era orphanage straight out of Oliver Twist with a hard, demanding, and punishing taskmaster who runs the place. Ritterboss says that this understanding of a guardian, with this, the law functions not so much as a, a tutor leading us in a gradual education towards our own salvation, but as an oppressive yoke. The law, says Ritterboss, makes man unsatisfied, teaches him how he will not get to the redemption of life. And in this sense, the law drives to Christ in order that we should be justified in him through faith. Justified, that is, emancipated from the curse and the impotence wrought by the law. The law drives us to Jesus because all of scripture leads us to Jesus. Sally Lloyd-Jones wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible precisely because of this point. The tagline of that Bible says, every story whispers his name. The law, the prophets, the Psalms, the history books, everything is pointing to Jesus. Everything is pointing to a savior, pointing to the Messiah. In seminary, one of the first things that we're taught in our preaching classes is that if we can preach a sermon in a synagogue, it's not a good sermon. Because if you can preach a sermon in a synagogue, it means you haven't talked about Jesus. It means you haven't talked about grace. And everything comes back to grace. Which isn't to say we're let off the hook for the rest of it. We've still got that third use of the law coming. We'll get there in a couple weeks. God is still the author of the law, so it is still really important for us. But we come to the law from a place of gratitude, not shame. Every Sunday we confess our sins not out of fear, but in the assurance of God's grace through Jesus Christ. And we read the Ten Commandments or the book of Leviticus. And we aren't meant to be overwhelmed by these things. Overwhelmed at how much there is to do and how badly we are doing it. But to give thanks that we don't do all of it alone. Because we have been baptized into Christ Jesus. And it is Christ by his spirit who empowers us to keep his commands. And we do this business of seeking to follow Christ in obedience as a collective body, as a family, a big family. 
because the promise God made to Abraham is the promise he makes to all people, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, old or young, rich or poor, new believer or longtime saint. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And that is the story of salvation. Would you pray with me? And so, Lord, our God, help us to see Jesus in the pages of Scripture. As we turn to your word over and over again, may we grow closer to you. May we come to know your will more and more. As we seek to be obedient, remind us of your grace. As we celebrate your graciousness, call us into faithful obedience. Thank you for the gift of your word, and most of all for the gift of your son, the descendant of Abraham by whom salvation, our salvation, came into the world. We pray this in the Savior's name and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.